listening to StaggerCast, brought to you by Stagger Gear. All right, we're jumping back in another episode of StaggerCast. I think this is episode number nine now, um, and we're sitting here with Dr. Christopher Jenkins. Is that right? That's me. Thanks so, for having uh, me. Yeah, no, glad to have you here. Um, Isaac's actually the one that brought you up, and ever since uh, he brought you up to me, I've been super looking forward to meeting up with you and talking with you because it uh, seems like you get a lot of interesting stuff going on. So for those that don't know you, uh, why don't you give us a little background on yourself, what you do, what brings you up to these parts, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, sounds good. Well, first, I'm really appreciative you guys having me on and for Isaac being my uh, personal turkey guide. And, and <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, uh, yeah, so as you mentioned, my name's Chris Jenkins, and I'm, uh, I've basically been working in wildlife research and, and conservation my whole life. And uh, for my my day job, I run a uh, wildlife conservation nonprofit, and we work primarily on uh, non-game animals like turtles and snakes and salamanders. And we do a lot of research and we do a lot of conservation. Uh, but there's a lot of intersection with the other half of my world, which is hunting and fishing. Um, and as an example, there, there's a lot of examples, but as an example, there's a, a really rare turtle down in Georgia where I live and uh, this this turtle is called a gopher tortoise and it's it's on the verge of becoming endangered species so we have a program to conserve the species and one of the primary ways we've been conserving it is by working with the state and other nonprofits uh, and essentially what we've been doing is buying land uh, important pieces of land for this turtle and so we're, we're buying these properties but almost every single one of these properties is being transferred over to the state and becoming a WMA. So while you have this property that's protected for a turtle, mm-hmm. you know, over the last 10 years, we've helped create, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of acres of land where you can go and hunt fish, yep. bird watch, that's hike, good. whatever yep. it is you're yeah, interested that's, in. That's awesome. So that's uh, part of my world. And, uh, and then the other part is that I'm heavily involved in conservation more from a hunting and fishing perspective as well. And, I've really been involved from uh, working with a nonprofit called Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and uh, I've been associated with that organization basically since it started. I uh, helped build up the Southeast chapter, and then I founded the Georgia chapter and led that for a few years. And, and just a couple of years ago, I moved up to the North American board, uh, where I play a variety of roles, but, but basically I'm... I'm, you know, working hard on public land conservation, in particular for for hunters and anglers. So, uh, I, I get to do a lot, kind of, in the hunting and fishing world from a conservation perspective as well. Yep. Uh, what else would be good to know about me? I live in Georgia, as I mentioned, which is probably that's, different than a lot of your guests. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's a whole change up. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but I live in a a different like probably most of your listeners think of the word Georgia and have a picture in their head, mm-hmm. and and the part of Georgia that I live in is much different than that. I live up in the Chattahoochee National Forest, which is, uh, you know, big mountains in the northern part of the state that connects to, uh, you know, western North Carolina, connects to places that people would know, like Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And uh, the landscape looks very much like that. It's kind of like a southern version of like the white or the green mountains, okay. really, really big mountains. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah, you were uh, throwing out some numbers earlier today. How many 6,000 footers are in Georgia, you were saying? Well, in Georgia, we actually don't have any, but I was saying, like, if you take, 
east of the Mississippi, all yep. the all the six thousand footers. Yep. There's I thought there were two up here, but you're saying there's just one. I think which so. Would be yeah. Mount Washington. And so let's just say I can't remember the number. It's somewhere in this ballpark, but let's say there are thirty six thousand footers. I think yep. it's I think it's twenty something. Um, almost all of them are in that western North Carolina, East right. Tennessee, a couple in Virginia. So that like so real close to you. Yeah, that area I live yeah. in. I mean, I live very close to some of them. I live right on the North Carolina border. So so, so those so big mountains. Those mountains dwarf ours. Yeah, really. I you, mean, we, no, you don't really think about it when you're thinking of the the southeast like that, but no. they really do. Yeah, just a whole different. I mean, you don't have the snow and stuff that we have up here, so it, yeah, you know, kind of mitigates that. But yeah, they're big. They're expansive. They cover. You know, they really most of North Georgia are big mountains. Um, huge part of Western North Carolina, really large mountains, East Tennessee, and then Southwestern Virginia. So yep. it's a pretty significant block of of you know big woods. Right, so. big, like big backcountry stuff. Like yep. lots I've, of wilderness areas yeah. and and wild and scenic rivers. I've got two wilderness areas just in my county, and again a wild and scenic river. And gotcha. It's a really wild country. How's the uh, access down there to like the big woods compared to like up here? Would you say is it a lot easier to get into, or you know, is there spots where you can go miles and miles and not see a road, or how does it kind of compare to up here from from your experience? Yeah, I'd say it's fairly similar. Gotcha. You know, the access pattern would be maybe similar to the Green Mountains here, where you have real low density of uh, you know Forest Service roads that'll kind of get you back, but there aren't there aren't extensive. There there are a lot of areas where you can take a, a you know a Forest Service road, and from that point, I mean, you could go uh, you know just really miles and miles yep. uh, of nothing and then uh in georgia in particular in the chattahoochee national forest we have one wilderness area called the Cahutta, and i mean it, it's the second largest wilderness in the appalachia mountain chain and it's big it's you know i lived out west for quite a while and i mean it's at that scale when you're in there it's you know as far as you can see there's multiple river systems and multiple mountain ranges and i mean it's it's really big yep. and and again some big wild and scenic rivers that you know in like a linear fashion are are incredibly wild yep so how's like the deer density down there because like you get up here in our mountains and the deer density is really low is it the same out there because there's not as much you know cutting and less feed and stuff or how does it work down there yeah i'd say well first of all across the state of georgia it varies incredibly yep. so you have if you go down into like south georgia that would be Probably what would come to mind for most people when they think of the southeast and deer. Yeah. And we would have relatively high deer densities, large deer uh, in terms of antlers in particular, and, and, you know, just, uh, you know, just high densities and all, you know, you see a lot of deer. We can shoot 12 deer a year in the state. Oh, wow. Uh, You can shoot two bucks and and 10 does. But then as you move up, I think... Some of our biggest bucks would actually be in the middle part of the state. So the state of Georgia is kind of broken into three regions. The north, which we've been talking about, which is the mountains. Yep. Um, you know, the wildest part of the state. And then there's the, the part closest to the coast is called the coastal plain. And then in between that is called the Piedmont. And the Piedmont's kind of an in-between. It's kind of like a rolling hills area, whereas the coastal plain is very flat. And so the coastal plain would really have the most deer. Um, and then, but the Piedmont also has high densities of deer and, you know, that's where you get really large deer. All these big deer you see mm-hmm. come, not all, but a lot of the big deer you see coming out of Georgia are coming out of that Piedmont region, you know, mm-hmm. where you're getting, 
you know, 160 to 200 inch deer every year. Yep. So, yep. Um, but then you get to the mountains uh, where I live and, and I do hunt all of them, but I live in the mountains and I kind of think of that as my home hunting and that gets, I mean, it's very similar to here. So, you know, I try to hunt Vermont in particular most years and, I would say from a deer density perspective, to get to your original question, it's really probably pretty similar. Like really, really low mm. densities of deer. Um, it's, uh, yeah, they're, they are not, uh, they're not everywhere. And it's r- really hard to hunt them because yep. of that. Yeah, I was yep. just going to ask you, do you think it's easier to get on bucks in, in the big woods of Georgia in the mountains? Or is it easier to get on bucks up in this kind of country? Uh, I would say it's different and mm. um and and let me think about that if you have snow up here yep. um and, and it's it's a little hard for me to to gauge that exactly because i do try to come up here and hunt most years but yep. in a good year i can hunt you know four days up here whereas down there similar to you guys right. you know i mean i'm living in those woods year round and spending a lot of time learning the deer and learning the forest um but i would say if you use the appropriate technique down there, you know, if we stand a good chance of shooting a nice deer every year, you're at least going to have a handful of opportunities. You go to South Georgia now and some of these properties, I mean, you, your opportunities at mature deer could be semi daily, depending on what you're targeting. But in the mountains, you know, if you hunt hard and use certain strategies, Mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can have an opportunity to mature deer, probably a couple opportunities in a year and i'm assuming if i lived here and spent the kind of time that you guys spent it would kind of be the same that Mm -hmm. i if i hunted hard for the whole season i'd have an opportunity at maybe one two three say three at least three and a half year old deer in a season yep so probably pretty similar in that regard yeah Hmm. i I remember watching was a last year i think a hunting public video they were down in the mountains of georgia i think it was and Mm -hmm. they talked about how difficult the mountain hunting was i think they ended up getting a really nice one aaron did i think yeah. Did, um, yeah, but they talked about how hard it was compared to everything else they were doing from Iowa and stuff. How that was like the most difficult right. but most rewarding, mm. and you could see the terrain through there. It was, I, it was thick and, and rolling. I always thought it would be really hard down there, and I don't know if I heard you say this on another podcast or not, or if I just dreamt it up. But that you know, there's these big mountains, and like the entire thing's just solid oak. Mm-hmm. So like you come up here and you hunt pieces, you know, you hunt mountains where let's say out of the entire mountain, only 10% of it is Oak. Mm -hmm. So you can narrow a lot of your, you know, searching down to that one little spot to get into deer or, you know, deer sign. Whereas down there, it's like, you're literally trying to find a needle in a haystack where it's like every, everywhere they step, they have acorns to feed on. Yeah. So I feel like that would be a big challenge. Yeah, it is. It is a challenge. And, and, uh, so first back to the hunting public, I would say nothing uh, against them. They're incredible hunters. But I would say that the area they were hunting, I would call the foothills. I wouldn't even call okay. that the the mountains proper, where gotcha. you know I typically hunt. It'd be like maybe equivalent to like these lower hills, like in the, in this you know the Vermont Valley or yep. the Champlain Valley, as compared to being say up on top of the Green Mountains. Right, um, gotcha. Which so if you were to go to those foothill areas, it's a little more like the Piedmont. You start getting into a little bit higher density deer. Um, but what they did and Aaron pulling out that buck was quite a feat because that particular place that they were hunting it is one of the, you know, received some of the most deer hunting pressure in the entire oh, really? state of Georgia. So it was pretty wow. incredible what they did. But I, I still would say that the, 
mountain hunting that that we're talking about is kind of different from what you saw in gotcha. that show. Okay. Bigger mountains for sure. Um, but talking about the landscape itself, so the mountains are big, as I mentioned. It's mm-hmm. you know they're they're really uh, just significant. They remind me kind of the White Mountains. Uh, you know the Green Mountains to some degree, but they're in most places are kind of less rounded. They're more sharp. They're more sharp. We didn't yeah. have glaciers like all through here. You had glaciers come through these landscapes and just churn and bulldoze these mountains and so you have all these swamps and Mm -hmm. you know we don't have any of that it's all all of the the shape of our mountains all has to do with erosion and water over time there was no ice that came in and like ripped the side of a mountain so uh so they're very steep and as you mentioned it's it's almost completely uh hardwoods and i mean we have some of the same species you have here we have you know, white pines and we have hemlocks. As you get into those lower foothill areas, we have like pitch pine and some other uh, short leaf pine, some other things like that. But uh, but generally it's just dominated by hardwoods. You know, you white oaks, red oaks of different types, hickories, uh, really diverse, but you know, a lot of black cherry, mm-hmm. but, but a lot of hardwood uh, producing mass. You, we do get you know, it'd almost be like when you start to get to the elevations up here where you would like go out of the trees and it would right. turn to like alpine. Yep. You know, you start getting, I don't know what that line would be, 5,000-ish and higher, or maybe higher than that. But you know, as you start to get to those elevations down there, say certainly around 6,000, like we get into like a spruce fir forest mm. like you guys would have here at, okay. I don't know, what, 3,000. It's like around yeah. three. Yeah, yeah around 3,000. Three, I'd say. A yeah. lot of the hardwood kind of stops and, okay. you know, the it starts to become softwood and like very mossy everywhere. And Yeah. Yeah. And so we get that, but that's, Way like higher. I said, that's like 1,000, 2,000 feet yeah. higher. And it must be a temperature thing, right? That's yeah, kind of yeah. like a, yeah. And, I typically don't hunt those areas as much because I don't have some of that right near my house. Mm. But back to your original statement about the hardwoods. Yeah, the, there's so, so many hardwoods that, uh, you know, it's, I mean, in certain years you could have, you know, you could have acorns everywhere, yeah. you know, or acorns nowhere. Um, it's also an important part of the strategy we use to hunt the deer in those big woods and that you can also have interesting patterns where like, you only have hardwoods really high, say like at 4,000 feet or, you know, 3,000 and higher. Or right. you might have years where you only have uh, hardwood mass low. Right. And so um, that how the mass produces each year is really important. And I, you know, I spend a lot of time in the woods year round. And in the summer, I'm often out there with binoculars, like looking up in the treetops to see the acorn mass and definitely paying a lot of attention to that as the season kicks off and uh i usually start with start hunting in september with bears and and the bear hunting is very heavily linked to the mass as well so that's mm-hmm. where i really start to kind of first get a feel for what the mass crop's going to be like but that's critically important <clears throat> for how you hunt down there because it's it's just dominates the landscape gotcha. but, but you can get flooded by it too you right with the yeah. acorns yeah it's not yeah. like oh this little stand of trees or these yeah. two trees some years you have that where yeah. one stand is produced more but sometimes they're just everywhere yeah so yeah yeah it's pretty bizarre because up here you find like this spot of oaks yeah and, and then you're, you you better be looking in there you know that's like, the hub it's that's like what, where you start that's what john yeah. was talking about last week in our shed hunt episode you find that that little chunk feed yeah and that's where the sheds are going to be and yep. the other deer are going to be i got a question for both of you so you're from georgia 
you're from up this way. I was like, how did you guys connect? Because I don't think I heard you guys before. How did you guys connect? <laughs> yeah, we were, it's going to be kind of a remember. bizarre story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually, I think how it all started, it was a few years ago. I heard him on another podcast and I thought what he was talking about was, you know, interesting, like the big mountains down that way. I've always kind of been intrigued with the big mountains, like, you know, North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee. I always look at them on the maps and they just look giant you know so i heard you talking about it thought it was really cool so i followed you on instagram or facebook requested you and and then like i think it was like a year later or something you messaged me and said that you hunt up this way or something we started a conversation but yeah so that's basically how Hmm. through social media basically is the short answer yeah so i actually grew up in new england okay yeah and i've lived all over i lived in the rocky mountains for a long time before moving to the southeast and so um as a child, I spent some time in southern Vermont, and then it was kind of the place that my grandfather always hunted. That was like his big trip. And so I, I've kind of always, when I can, I've always come back to Vermont because it's just almost like nostalgic or like connects me back to mm-hmm. where my, my family used to hunt. Yep. And so I've always been drawn to hunt here, and, and you know, we connected around that. and yep. Some snake stuff, some snake pictures going back and forth. And, <laughs> yep. Yeah. So. Yep. so your career's kind of brought you all over the place then? Yeah, I, I yeah. like I said, I was in, I was in New England till I was in my early twenties, and then I moved out west, lived in the Rocky Mountains, kind of near Yellowstone National Park for about ten years, and then uh, then moved down to Georgia. And I've been there for thirteen years now. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, how do you uh, how do you like hunting up here? I love it. I, I would say that snow tracking is is my favorite type of hunting. I'm not. You know, I, I can't claim to be great at. It. I just don't do it that much. You know, mm-hmm. I get a couple of days. Yeah, you don't have a while, but, whole much time for um, that. But like, I think I was telling you this morning, Isaac, like how I kind of like conceptualize my hunting in my head is that like I think of this book that I read called Hunting from Home, and and it's always fascinated me. People who live in a place and they know a place so well, and they're just like steeped in like the history and the woods and. They know the plants and the animals and how everything fits together and, and they're out there and they're hunting and fishing. And, and uh, you know, so I, I strive to do that where I live in these southern mountains. But then the other part of me loves adventure and I love to travel. And, and so I combine that with the hunting. And every year I'm probably making four or five, six hunting trips, you know, anywhere in the country. You know, uh, you know, I went to Mexico for turkeys this year, for example. So it, and those are more it's slightly different. That's like an adventure for me. And Vermont's like that too. Like I don't, like I don't come here like needing to, you know, harvest a giant buck. It's like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to track down a, you know, a mature deer and harvest it and bring it home. But it's not, that's not the reason that I come here or the reason I go out West or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So. Just like the experience of the whole Vermont hunting scene and everything. Yeah. Just in that history of my family, like, really brings me back but i will say that the tracking i love any type of hunting where you're like you're you're completely immersed in it you're not passive you're like aggressive integrated you're aggressive at times but you're like part of the process Mm -hmm. and I, i certainly do a lot of sitting when i hunt at times but i like styles of hunting where you're like moving and reading the landscape and thinking and listening and and so 
tracking for me is just I love it because it's just so much of that. You're just pro. You're nonstop. There's no time to think about any other problem you have in your life. Mm-hmm. Your head is just processing that everything that's happening around you. So that's, mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, so. that's the beauty of tracking. You can just it's forget everything. Sure, yeah. It's you're fully engaged the whole time. It's you versus the deer. Yeah, it's, yeah. That's why I fell in love with it too, and a lot of guys. And that's why it's growing. I think. Yeah, like, something sure. about that takes a certain kind of guy but yep. you know if, if you like it you like it mm. yep. so circling back to bear hunting how do bear you hunting. how do you bear hunt in the georgia mountains well for the first of all there's a a pretty strong kind of a, like a historic just tradition of bear hunting in the southern appalachians and and it's it's Appalachians down there, Appalachians up here. But yep. anyway, so down in the Appalachians, it's uh, there's a real strong bear hunting culture and history. Um, and but the way the states lay out now is that in Georgia, you you cannot hunt with dogs. In North Carolina, you can. In Tennessee, you can. Um, and so so we don't hunt with dogs in Georgia. And basically, what we do is that the bear hunting. Is, is certainly best early and our archery season opens up in September and, and our bear season's basically perfectly in line with our deer season. So bears open September 15th. And so when archery opens, I'm not even, I'm not deer hunting. I mean, if a deer happened, if I happened to bump into a deer, which I almost never would cause I'm in the mountains and I'm moving mm-hmm. when I bear hunt, I'm always moving. And so what we typically do is I go to fairly remote areas and I get up on high ridges and, and I've talked about how all these mass producing trees, you know, dominate the landscape. Well, right when bear season opens and in, in kind of mid September, the white oaks are, you know, their, their acorns are just perfect. And so the bears are in the trees feeding on the white oaks. And I would say that time of year, about 50% of the bears that you see hunting will be in a tree and about 50% be on the ground. And so what we do is get to pretty remote, um, high ridges and, and do these kind of slow walks or hikes. And you're really listening for one, cause the bears will be up in these trees and what they do is they like, you know, with their teeth and their paws, they're snapping off the branches and then they drop this acorn laden branch down mm-hmm. to the base of the tree and they'll just pop a bunch of those and they drop all those and then they climb down and they eat all those acorns and they're up there eating them as well um, and then the sign you see from that is just incredible you're walking on a remote ridge and like you're coming through a grove of white oaks and there are literally piles of semi-fresh branches mm-hmm. piles of bear scat when you get into those areas you know that you're into a heavy feeding area mm. um, and, and at that point at some sometimes you might sit on that type of sign sometimes you'll still hunt through it use different techniques but the key is finding that sign um, and we have pretty high density uh, bear populations and i have them right at my house literally three or four days ago i looked out my kitchen window and there's a bear standing next to my truck so i think i saw that on your instagram right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. taking off and down the driveway and that when i started filming it it had already moved like 30 feet it was i mean i literally looked out the window and i was like oh. <laughs> yeah. and last year i was hunting a bear um up behind my house i have a real nice uh white oak flat on my land that the bears hit really hard so i can be hunting 10 minutes from my house and yeah. uh, anyway so i was in that and i was hunting this bear i'd seen it multiple times um 
it was archery. I hadn't I used a recurve, so I'm going to get real close. And I hadn't got a shot at it yet. And then I was done for the afternoon. I had to go home for dinner or something. So I'm walking back to the house. And I can hear my wife and my daughter in my driveway. I'm just a couple hundred yards from them. They're, they're doing something in the driveway. And all of a sudden, probably about halfway between me and them, I see this bear. Let me see giant bear. You know, I'm talking like 350-pound mm-hmm. bear. And it's just standing there. It actually saw me and spooked off. But my point being that, like, you know, had a 350-ish pound bear 100 yards from my wife and daughter right near my house. And and um, that's rare. I will say most bear hunting we do is very remote. But, yeah. Um, but I hunt them right in my backyard, too. So. Okay. It sounds like a really fun way to hunt bears. Yeah. Uh, just be Like I said earlier, you were telling me how you do it. It's like squirrel hunting for monster squirrels. Because I know like when I was a kid, I loved to squirrel hunt. I'm always like looking up, like trying to catch them in the trees, feeding or listening for the nuts, Yeah, you know, listening to them. That's what I kind of like I envision you guys doing is just like walking through the woods, like looking up. Yeah, you're you're like, looking up as yeah, you're and, listening. You know, you're kind of going to the edge of a ridge and right. listening down to the side. And yeah. um, looking, you're looking up in the trees as much as you're looking down. It's, it is a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. Up this way, they don't really do that in the oaks. No, they do that in the like beech it. trees. Yeah. They go up in the beech trees and they'll like pull in all the branches and make these like big nests. Yeah. Where they exactly. like sit there and just gorge themselves on beech nuts. But they they definitely don't. They just eat the acorns off the ground. I think we have very few white oaks up this way yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, you go north few. here, there's like hard, not many oaks at all, really. Yeah. Like, no. My way up in this, it's just all beaches. And you see, yeah. when you're out tracking deer and stuff, you see all the claw marks in the trees going up there. And then in the come, beaches. Yeah. And then yeah. you come across an area when, when you're in there's snow and just everything for like a 50 yard circle is just completely tore up off the ground. It's oh, pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. And then if what's interesting is if you get one in a tree, you need to think about what you're going to do because. You know, say the bear doesn't know you're there. You know, it is in Georgia. I think some states it's it's not, but in Georgia it's legal to shoot him in the tree. But you gotta you gotta think if you shoot him in the tree, if he's comfy up there in a cross, is it or gonna something? get stuck, yeah. or do you let you know? So do you shoot up there? Or do you let it come down? Right, you might so, have to wait him out or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. no kidding. So like if you if there's a bear up in a tree, I don't know if you've had this situation before. If they see you, will they just kind of like sit up there and wait you out, or will they come down and run? I don't know if I've ever had one in the tree that saw me. I oh, certainly okay. have bumped into bears and had them immediately go up into trees and during season. Gotcha. But I, I haven't ever shot one in a tree. I've always kind of waited for them to come down or, you know, so. It's going to be pretty difficult to shoot one out of a tree with a recurve, I would imagine. Yeah, well, and then, <laughs> well, that too. Yeah, yeah, no, I get you. As well. We have a, you know, so our archery opens mid-September and then, about mid-October, we have a week of muzzleloader, and then we transition into rifle, and then we go rifle right halfway through January. Gotcha. So, and you said you pack out all of your bears that you shoot. Yeah, I mean, unless you know, so I go that bear behind right, my house, right, right. or something's right behind yeah, my yeah, house. Yeah. But yeah, no, I I pack out all the bears, all the deer, all the deer the too. I was yeah. gonna say, yeah, that's... down in the lowlands, depending on the situation, I might not, but. Um, Again, unless I shot something like right behind my house, but typically yeah, I'm breaking them down um, and packing them out like you would out west. That's cool. I mean, you just have to process them pretty quick down there because you don't get the cool nights and stuff as much as we get up here where you can leave a deer out. Well, he or... said earlier, you said when you're bear hunting, it's like pretty cold, right? Oh, is it? Yeah, it can, it can be. And certainly as you get later in the season. So our, our rut, this is another important difference. So 
if you, if you go to the south, you know, deer in general across much of North America were almost gone, right? And so a lot of deer were put back into the south. Mm-hmm. And so you go to states like Georgia, and you can Google this. You can If you Google Georgia rut map, there's a map of the state, and it'll show you where what timing you know all the different deer rut and you can do the same in alabama and and so and it's so diverse that in georgia for example if you wanted to move around you could start the season on september 15th and you could hunt all the way to january 15th when it closes and you could literally be hunting deer in the peak of the rut the entire time really because you know the coast ruts in september and then there's an Mm -hmm. area that ruts in october but so in the mountains uh, the, it's a late rut. And so our deer, like peak rut for the mountain deer is like basically the first week of December. Really? Yeah. So it, so it it's, works its way upstate kind of in tears. Yeah. Somewhat. But then we also have a January rut and that's as far south as you can get in the southwest corner of the state. So, Interesting. Um, and then you go over to Alabama and there are ruts in Alabama in like February. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, but yeah, no, but in the mountains anyways, it can get pretty cold. Like oftentimes... With the both bear and deer, I hang them, you know. But yep. once I get them out, you know, even if they're broken down, I'll still hang them. Yeah, you know. But um, in the lowlands, yeah. So down in the coastal plain, I have a property down there that I hunt, and certainly there are a lot of days where you know you'll kill a deer in the morning, and you have to cut it up that day, if, you know, because it's going to be eighty-five degrees. Yeah. So yeah, gets to them pretty quick. So we've been talking about the hardwood landscape of the mountains in Georgia. Um, like, what are there, What other features are like a big factor in the deer habitat down that way? Yeah, it's in. You know, so again, it's mostly dominated by hardwoods, but there's another really uh, important component, which again is something different than most of the places up here, and that is that we have these mountain laurel and rhododendron thickets. They call them like rhododendron hells because they're i mean they can be i've been climbing through them up on the appalachian trail in north carolina you know trying to get through them where i'm literally like in the branches my feet aren't even touching the ground i'm kind of like crawling (laughs) through the air they're so thick um and and they can be expansive they can be entire mountainsides you know i'm talking hundreds of hundreds of acres sometimes Mm -hmm. and so uh well with all that hardwood, you have, the forest is really open, but mm-hmm. then you have these really dense areas. So you kind of have this real contrast, really open and then incredibly dense. And, you know, as, as we were talking earlier, you know, it's, it might be somewhat analogous to getting into like thick green growth for deer, you know, up in, up in these mountains. Yep. So mm-hmm. that's a really important component. The deer, not always, but oftentimes will bed in those, mm-hmm. um, and they'll, you know, they also bed kind of, you know, using elevation and, yep. you know, kind of, you know, the view down the mountains. They'll, they'll do that quite a bit as well. But they will, they'll go into these rhododendron and into these laurels and, and bed in there. And so, so thick in there. Okay. So, yeah, it's like perfect habitat. Yeah. There's a lot of that laurel in Massachusetts. And then also there's a lot of it down in the Catskills where I've hunted. And whenever you find that mountain laurel, let me tell you. There's an abundance of deer and bear and every other critter. You know, I wish it grew up this way because if it did, (laughs) we'd have a lot more deer. I mean, it's just, it's perfect habitat for them. They they have literally, where I've seen it, they have like tunnels through the stuff. Like trails that just, I mean, 
it's like rose bushes kind of, but there's no prickers. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Nice. <laughs> it is hard to move through, though. Some, it definitely some, is. It's like viney. Sometimes it's impossible, yeah. So I see a lot of bushes on like people's front lawns around here. Is that Would that be rhododendron? Yeah, so rhododendron has been used like in landscaping. And it looks a lot like laurel. Yeah. I always see like, oh, my God, mountain laurel, but it's, yeah. it's not. And <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, but the, in the wild mountain laurel, it like I said, it can be hundreds of acres. It can be entire mountainsides. And it can be kind of short and thick. It can be really tall. It can mm. be, you know, 10 plus 20 feet tall. So, uh, and just incredibly thick. But it is it is a major form of, uh, you know, a cover. And oftentimes, your big bucks, uh, you know, even during the rut, they'll oftentimes be, uh, you know, kind of be like skirting through the edges of the laurel. You know, they'll oftentimes be like a nice trail, like say just inside the laurel. And a lot of, uh, I guess we'll talk about like how we get to where we hunt in that landscape. But once you get there, there's lots of different ways you might try to hunt a deer. But one is, you know, oftentimes you can find these little shoots that like drop into a laurel where there's like, a 10 foot wide opening, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you literally might sit those types of openings where the deer are going to cross, mm-hmm. um, or sit edges of the laurel. You're almost it, like, like anywhere you hunt white-tailed deer. I mean, white-tailed deer like thick stuff. And mm-hmm. so, um, you're usually taking that laurel rhododendron component in, into play while you're figuring out how to hunt them. Yep. That's <clears throat> interesting. Hmm. Okay. I got a question for you. This is kind of not to change subjects fully, but from a conservation standpoint and being that you've seen all sorts of states and different habitats for animals and stuff, do you have, do you see anything that like Vermont and Northeast states that you think could do better compared to like what the South's doing? Like, do you have any, see anything that you think the state could do better that would help the deer habitat? Yeah. And, and I'll go beyond deer habitat and I'll just talk about wildlife diversity in general. Um, So in my role at BHA, I recently, passed a policy which becomes like an organization-wide policy it's a statement this is what bha stands for and we have them on everything from bighorn sheep and diseases you know just a diversity of of policy issues but i i passed or you know passed a policy issue that we called the eastern forest management policy and so a consistent problem that we see up and down the appalachian mountains it is a lack of forest management and Mm. uh, we have the same thing down in the southern appalachians and you have it here and uh you know and what you end up with is primarily an uh you know even aged old growth type forest like everything's heading towards climax and when you have that you just have lower diversity all around and i'm not just talking about deer i'm talking about the things i you know rattlesnakes and other animals like diverse forests promote you know diverse wildlife communities so uh you know at bha we really support more forest management meaning you know depending on the landscape and the habitats might be more prescribed fire it might be more mechanical or logging type treatments Mm -hmm. and don't get me wrong i love wilderness i love old growth forest and there should be components of that but we've moved to a state through much of the appalachians where it's like we've become the playground for urban areas. Mm. And, and, and That's a good I'm, point. I'm making like a that, generalization like here, and, and I'm recognizing that. Mm. But 
in general, when people come, they don't understand the, the ecological connections and the importance of, say, young forest. They just see, you know, if they see some logging, they automatically think it's a bad thing. But his, prehistorically and, you know, historically, these forests would have had all these natural disturbances. There would have been fires. Mm-hmm. There would have been extensive beaver wetlands. There would have been ice storms and tornadoes and on and on. And these things would be, you know, changing the forest and there'd be young forest and mm-hmm. middle-aged forest and old forest. So my point, the biggest thing, I think, from a conservation perspective, and this is from top to bottom throughout the Appalachian Range, is, is we need to, you know, increase the diversity of our forests. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of those natural disturbances don't happen at the same level. So we need to because go Because we prevent them. Because we prevent because them we in prevent some cases. Them, yeah. Fire, yeah. Uh, you know, down where we are, we used to have bison and elk and, you know, those things are gone and those would influence mm-hmm. the forest structure. But mm-hmm. anyways, you know, physically going in and making sure we just don't have an even age old growth forest because that's not good for deer. Mm-hmm. It's not good for turkeys. It's not good for the rattlesnakes. I agree. All of these things. Yeah. So. I, I think that's, you look at Vermont compared to like New Hampshire and Maine. There's like hardly any cutting in Vermont mm-hmm. versus like a spot that I hunted Very this little. year. There was a windstorm probably five years ago. And in that area this year, because there's some new growth coming up through, yep. that area was loaded. Right. You know, so I think select cutting in some of our state forests would benefit mm-hmm. a lot. It would. Uh, every species. Because, I mean, a lot of state forests up my way, there isn't a turkey population. There isn't a lot of, there's, it's just barren. And a mm-hmm. lot of it is. Because it's just big, huge maples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, that and, maples and beach. Yeah. And, you know, that's it. But that's a good point. Don't get me wrong. You can you can plan these things. So say say there's an important, you know, lichen or mushroom or whatever it is that likes old growth forest, and yep. you know you plan. Oh, this block should be set aside. It yep. Should never be cut. And yeah, I mean, you should, you should do it in a strategic way. Yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. advocating yeah. for clear cutting everything. Right. But, no, right. Absolutely. But if you don't clear cut anything, I think uh, you know when I talked about this, people coming up from urban areas, they they're thinking that they're doing the best thing but they're actually they're hurting, hurting biodiversity yeah. yep. the, the forests are less diverse i mean a lot of those people don't think about it you know they're coming up for the weekend to go hiking oh, yeah. up mount washington yeah. or, or mount mansfield camel sump whatever all they're, this way and they just you know they want to see the big trees in nature and they don't think about the ecological impact they think that. about bambi mm-hmm. and how beautiful the big trees look and how they can see 400 yards up through the hardwoods and but bambi's gotta eat yeah that's bambi's right and, and you know Back to the laurel thing. So like up this way, we don't have the laurel. So when our old growth stuff comes up, it's just like I just said, you can see 400 yards through the open hardwoods. It's a dead forest, Mm -hmm. right? So down your way, at least you guys have the laurel. So like in yeah. those like big old growth stuff, you still have that still undergrowth. Cover. There's still <clears throat> cover. So I st- there's still that diversity that or the security cover that they need to live in, in you know be safe mm-hmm. with up, up this way if we don't have logging we have nothing yep, for the for the true. for the deer i that's mean true. they're going to be in either a swamp or the tippity top of mountain mm-hmm. and that's usually what it is up here if yeah. there's no cutting and there's yeah. and there's not a lot of animals like up in there and that's why a lot of people hunt gravitate towards hunting private land then you get yep. hunter landowner confrontations and it's just a, it's a chain reaction all the way down through but, mm-hmm. yeah and one difference down south that um I see. So there is, like on the Chattahoochee National Forest where I live, it's probably pretty similar to the Green Mountain in terms of timber harvest. There's very little of it. 
But one thing that there's more of is that there's a lot of prescribed fire. Like it's just part of, mm-hmm. you know, Southern cultures and forest. And um, so even in the mountains and in, in the lowlands, there's certainly a lot of prescribed fire. But in the mountains, <clears throat> there's certainly a fair amount of prescribed fire, which does create a lot of diversity. Um, you know, a lot of food for deer and helps again rattlesnake habitat and all of these things. So. Yep. <clears throat> Do uh, being that you, you're looking at like rattlesnakes and reptiles and stuff like that, how, the, does the deer and rattlesnake uh, habitat overlap quite a bit? Would you say because you're in the woods a lot looking for snakes and stuff? What do you mm-hmm. see? How do they line up? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly kind of I would question. say <laughs> that rattlesnakes are predators, obviously, yep. and uh, are feeding on animals that are feeding on the same things that deer are being acorns and, and all of that. So, okay. so yeah, certainly rattlesnakes, uh, down in the Southern mountains are, are focused on foraging in a lot of the same forests that you would find deer and bear and turkey and everything else focused on eating mm-hmm. acorns. So I just kind of view it all as one big, they're all connected. Total know? ecosystem. Yeah. Right. Yep. Adam, I have a theory about rattlesnakes and sheds. Let's hear it. If you'd like, <laughs> you had to get it. this into the podcast. Yes, I did. Chris thought this was brilliant. Okay, All right. he thinks oh that I should. Uh... <laughs> so, uh, basically, my theory is, in the Northeast, we have a lack of rattlesnakes. Therefore, way, way more rodents. Because, you know. Okay, I didn't see okay. where this is going. You get where this is going? Okay, okay, yeah. okay so <laughs> all the sheds, let's say in Vermont, are usually chewed up by around April, May. You know, we're not finding old bleached out antlers that are five years old like they do in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. which is full of rattlesnakes. So you need more rattlesnakes That's in Vermont, what I'm saying. Then, then you'll That's have better shed hunting. Maybe. I'm not sure. We haven't really <laughs> tested it That's a good point. scientifically. Yeah. But it's something I've always thought and... It could be true. It could be because they do get chewed up, and I they would do. say Vermont is probably the hardest state to shed hunt in okay. out of the Northeast. And like you look and at, you look <laughs> at like Steve Shirk, a guy down in PA, and he's yeah. finding these bleached out antlers that are like he like sometimes he finds them they're like five six years old, mm-hmm. and they're just laying there, pristine, beautiful, never been chewed on once. Hmm. It's because them snakes they set up like a food plot. <laughs> they set up right on that antler, and they just wait for that squirrel to come down, uh, start nibbling, funny. bang. Huh. But yeah. Quite the theory. Interesting. We'll theory. go with it. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> Starting to see how uh, my mind works yep. here. Do you uh do you ever do any work with the rattlesnakes and stuff? I know there is some up this way, but do you ever do any study? Yeah, so we have, um so for your listeners, there are rattlesnakes in the northeast. Uh in, in the, the big deer hunting states, you know, where where people track, you know, there certainly are rattlesnakes in New York. Uh, there are rattlesnakes in Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, there are no longer rattlesnakes in Maine. Uh, they historically occurred in Maine. Um, but I would say that in all of those cases, that in the places, and certainly the time that you would be tracking, but even in the places that you would be tracking, so your big wood settings in the Northeast are not places that yeah. where those rattlesnake populations occur. So in Vermont... There are only two populations remaining of rattlesnakes. Gotcha. You know, people in Vermont should know that rattlesnakes are considered one of the most endangered animals in the state. It would be mm-hmm. 
Right next to Bigfoot. Right next to Bigfoot. <laughs> we were on the trail of Bigfoot today. We were. We oh, were you? Were. Yeah. Oh, shit. We worked seven long beards this morning. Yeah, you guys want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, I mean, so it was pretty intense. You came up here, right, to turkey hunt for the most part? You guys yeah. linked up and wanted to do some bird hunting. Yeah. Seems yeah. like you turkey hunt all over the place. I turkey hunt a lot. Yep. I, t- I try to turkey hunt. I try to get in as many days as possible each year. Yep. And so I'll start, usually I'll start in Florida, and then I'll hunt. You know, this year I hunted Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Vermont, and Mexico. So, mm-hmm. um, but Vermont's wrong. been like, I told Isaac, it's been like, <clears throat> I mean, I've I kill a lot of turkeys. I mean, kill like five to ten turkeys a year, and and just always oh, multiple states. And but Vermont, this is probably my fourth year hunting it. And it's just been this like nemesis for me. Really? I haven't been able to get a turkey in Vermont. And I've been on turkeys consistently. Like I'm in them almost every day that I hunt for. It just, yeah. just has not come together. So. Hmm. Sometimes they're a tricky bird. Tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow is going to happen. Figured them out a we had today. five long beards, single file mm-hmm. at like 70. Oh, no shit. And uh, we just set up on the wrong side of a little thick spot. No hens with them. They're just coming. Just not with them. Yeah, there was a hen in the vicinity, but she was yeah. off with another gobbler. But yeah, it was hen. so close. I mean, oh my god. <laughs> I, I, if I, I if I knew they were going away, I probably would have moved on them. I move on turkeys a lot, but he, they were just so close. It seemed like they were going to pop over this hill at any moment, and they just they moved off. But but it was an exciting morning. They were gobbling. Oh, crazy! Gobbling watched them strutting, and yeah, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, so. it was. Hmm. Good going, so you're going back out tomorrow morning? Yep. Same yep. spot. Right back we'll get after him. Yeah. How many days you got up here? I'm gonna hunt probably through Tuesday morning. Tuesday. Gotcha. Yeah. It's it's a good turkey hunt state. It is. There seems like there's a lot of birds kicking around. A lot of turkey hunters though. There is. That's... Which he you seemed like you were kind of surprised by that. Yeah, I don't know why, but yeah. uh, oh man, it did the it last did ten years. Last That's ten what it years, is, yeah. It there's, seems like they've multiplied, oh, yeah. multiplied, of, multiplied. Especially yeah. around this area that I live in, Ooh, there's yeah. a lot of turkey hunters. Yeah, like every like I run into turkey hunters a lot if I'm in this area. Yeah, and a lot of times if you get a bird really hot and bothered, you'll Somebody. call in hunters oh. so if, if he's not coming like right away that's what i always get worried about like oh my gosh yeah yeah here comes fred up over yeah. the hill you know yeah. like you almost want him to be quiet exactly like, quiet yeah. i know where you are right gobble now. a couple times come in <laughs> we'll make this easy but yeah but hmm. it's a lot of fun turkey hunting's a lot of fun it's a good way to stay in shape and i'm always scouting for deer while i'm turkey hunting yep. so you know it's a great way to be in the woods and i think the more you're in the woods the better absolutely it was warm this morning, man. I went out and oh, it was had another Jake come in. I did the the math. I'm up to I've passed 14 Jakes up to this point. That's pretty good this season. This season, four, wow. Usually it's like <sighs> hardly any Jakes in my areas, but this year I've passed 14. Well, jakes. next year's next year's gonna be, gonna be something, and hopefully, and then I mean I've missed a long beard, and a buddy that's was with me he missed a long beard. It's been a tough season for long beards, getting them in range and stuff, and then when we screwed, yeah. we screwed the the two opportunities we had up, but Jake's. Ton of Jakes this year up my way. Yeah, I don't think I would have been able to pass fourteen of them. Yeah, right around uh, number about five. I would have been getting a little <laughs> Some turkey minute. nuggets. Let me yeah. tell you, it's true. <laughs> they are good. Oh well. Um. So back to the tracking topic. I know you come up to the northeast to track, mm-hmm. but have you ever had the opportunity to track in those southern mountains? Because I know you get like a snow every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Has that ever happened? Yeah, so I've done a little tracking out west as well. Yeah. Oh. I killed a couple mule deer on track. Oh, okay. Well, nice. And then, 
so yes, we get we probably get like two or three snowstorms a year. And you know, usually one's significant, maybe like six inches, and yeah. the other ones might be an inch or two. And usually the inch or two's gone that day, the next day, six inches probably gone in two days. So it's pretty rare. And then the other thing is that most of those snowstorms would be like after the deer season, January, February. But um, I have had a couple occasions, and I will say that even in January, or February, when it snows, I go out and track deer, even though I can't cool. carry a gun. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, but <clears throat> and, and that helps just just like you guys yeah. would have here. You just learn these routes, like oh, deer like to use that mm-hmm. gap. We call it a gap, but you might call it a notch or a pass, or you know. So um, so I'll go track them to learn like that. But I have had a couple times during hunting season. Uh, where I could track a deer and it helped me kill one of my biggest mountain deer uh, in that I didn't kill it on the track but it it uh, I tracked it up to a high mountain and I had to leave but I, I saw the track going to the top of the mountain and so the next day I went in couldn't finish the track and I had a work meeting so the next day I come in and I just went straight to the top of that mountain, and that deer was on the top mountain. I ended up killing it, but no kidding. Um, but no, I've never, I've never killed a deer on a track in the southern mountains. It's so rare to have that opportunity. It's not. I mean, if it snowed, mm-hmm. that's what that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. But in the thirteen years I've lived there, I mean, it's happened twice. So. Boy, I bet they wouldn't be looking on their backtrack down there. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be like some gravy. <laughs> you got any uh, any favorite tracking story in mind for up this way? Uh, I would say. So the first thing I'd say is is uh, I've done it a fair amount now, but I only do it a couple days a year. Mm-hmm. I've never shot a deer tracking. I could have shot multiple deer, but. But again, when I'm up here, it's kind of like this adventure. Like I wouldn't just shoot any deer. I can shoot as many. Well, I can't shoot. You know, I can shoot up to twelve deer in Georgia. I, I never have a meat crisis because, mm-hmm. worst case scenario, at the end of the season, I'll just go shoot some does in the low country. It's you know, I won't say it's automatic, but it's pretty close to automatic. Yeah. So yep. there's no meat issue. So, anyways, I have uh, I've been close, or I've I've caught up to multiple deer that were you know, smaller, a six point or what, and I just let them walk. Uh, and then I was telling you this story earlier, Isaac, but the only deer that I shot at uh, up in these mountains was in the Southern Green Mountains here. And I had been uh, tracking it and, you know, I'd been listening to all the podcasts and reading all the books and uh, just kind of digesting it. And, and this animal just, I mean, it followed it followed the, uh, you know, followed the book perfectly. I mean, it was moving, moving, moving. I was moving most of the day. Uh, later in the day, towards midday, it was very obvious. It started feeding. First, I came up on a birch, and there was a mushroom. And I could see it pull the mushroom off this tree, and and then it had moved up, and it scratched, and it looked like it might have been eating some ferns or something under the snow, and did again, and then I moved up towards this knob, and uh, in this, he didn't see me, but he just happened to stand up. When I was about 50 yards from him. He just stood up kind of, and then just casually started walking away, like right in front of me. He wasn't walking away from me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was in some whips. And, and so I pulled up my gun and he was a 
decent eight point. I don't know exactly body size. I don't know exactly how to judge the body size up here, but, um, but I ended up shooting and hitting a small tree, which was heartbreaking. Mm. Um, but I'll tell you a, a tracking story for, uh, out in Idaho, which was really incredible story. So, uh, we were up in Southeast Idaho, right on the Wyoming border. And I had been, we had a camp set way back up in the mountains. We were hunting mule deer. And me and my buddy, I found this high meadow area. They had a, you know, from where we were camping, it was a good, you know, three, four mile hike in the morning. And you'd get up, you'd kind of go through this kind of spruce fir pine zone. And then you'd pop out on top of these mountains and just be like open, rolling sagebrush meadows and elk and moose. Beautiful. And... There were uh, three really nice mule deer kind of running around on these tops. And we, me and my buddy hunted them for multiple days. One day I missed one of them. She, she took a long shot, like a couple hundred yards plus and missed. Uh, and then we were in them almost every day, but, you know, we, we screwed up on them multiple times. So anyways, I we head home from our hunt. I get home like nine o'clock that night and... I just tell my wife, I'm just like, uh, I have to go back there. Like I just <laughs> wasn't, it was not complete. So I decided, I was like, I'm going to get up at like, I mean, it was far from my house too, just the drive person. I get up at like two in the morning. So I go to sleep for four hours, whatever. Get up at two in the morning, start driving there and there's a blizzard. And, uh, and it ends up, I, I should have got there by sun up, but because of all the snow, I ended up getting there probably about 10 o'clock and I couldn't. I couldn't, I had to park maybe a mile from where we were parking previously because oh, the really? snow was hitting the frame of my truck. And so I just parked it there, got out, went went up this mountain, and I hiked around for a few hours, didn't see a single thing. And I was like, man, I can't find this here. And so I'm, I'm walking out, and I, I start start walking out, and I come in between these two, like, kind of big, Christmas trees. I don't know if they were Doug firs or what they were, but anyways, and right behind each of them, there's two deer beds and these deer tracks get up out of these beds and they kind of go opposite directions. And so I picked one and, uh, I make, I'll make the tracking story, uh, short, I guess, but it, it was the deer basically just kind of did a big circuit through these meadows moving, um, moving pretty consistently. And I ended up, uh, I ended up kind of coming up over a little sagebrush rise and I just was peeking up and, and he was just probably 30 yards in front of me, just kind of feeding away from me and the sagebrush had his head down, didn't even know I was there. Um, and, uh, I ended up shooting him and, and he died right on the spot. But then this afternoon, I'm in like a foot of snow and I got to get this, this giant mule deer out of the mountains. Mm. So I break the, break the deer down and I've got miles back to the truck. So I bring one load back and I, for some reason I left my rifle on the deer carcass. Hmm. So I leave my rifle and, and I've got this pack and I hike out and, uh, and actually it was interesting on the way out, the other mule deer, which was even larger came about 40 yards from me. I was just standing Holy there God. looking at him. He was carrying his buddy on my back. Oh, man. And uh, 
and so then I, I hiked, long story short, I hiked that back to the truck and I had to go back in. I had no food or water because I just, like I said, left in the middle of the night and uh, got the second load. And as I was coming up, as I was getting back to the carcass, um, I'll never forget this. I've never seen a mountain lion in the wild. I've seen wolverines in the wild and grizzly bears and all these animals. But a mountain lion track had come to my track where I hiked out. And it followed my track out. And so I'm walking up and all of a sudden I see there's a mountain lion track in my boot track. And uh, I remember just kind of stopping and like looking around. Mm. And uh, anyways, I never saw the mountain lion. And my gun was back say, on you the left your gun on, on the <laughs> yeah. So uh, That's that, going to be a little spooky. Though. Little your hair was hairy. up on your neck on that one all the way back, yeah. I bet. Yeah. What does a mule deer dress out at? Like typically. You know, I don't weigh them, right? So I couldn't give you, but it would. They're certainly much larger than whitetails. Like okay. It wouldn't surprise me, like a big mule deer buck. You know, if you're talking like dressed out, you know, like like a big whitetail, like a two fifty. Oh, really? So that's kind of like a, I, I might be wrong on that. I mean, but because I, I thought they were one. bigger. Oh, no, they're definitely bigger. I than didn't white know tails how much bigger. Like, yeah, no, they're they're. Big They're deer. big, big. I know the racks are pretty impressive. Yeah, I'd like to go sh- yeah, shoot cool. one one day. Super yeah, tall, wide ones. Yep. Yeah, they're fun. fun. They really hmm. are. So, um, but I don't think you typically. That's uh, kind of got lucky being able to. You oftentimes hunt them in the snow, but that's not how you would typically hunt mule deer. Yeah. No. So. Yeah. You, you usually guys don't track them out there. I don't think so. Not no? that that I heard of it. They're really like people do a lot of glassing, a lot of oh, spots. Really? Like, there is a lot of great tracking out west like in states like idaho and montana if, as you get up into like kind of the northern like northwest montana northern mm-hmm. idaho um and the selkirks and the you know some of those mountain ranges up there there's a lot of whitetails and a lot of big whitetails and they get a lot of snow and um you know i've heard it's pretty good tracking i've never done it but that would be fun. That would be yeah. It always <laughs> seems like there's there's some good whitetails out there. All of a sudden you see you see a picture every once in a while. That yeah. somebody I think Cal Blood like, oh. and Joe Donito yeah, went, went out there out a few there. years ago to Montana. They got two big ones. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's probably not. Is there a lot? Not probably not a lot of trackers out there. I would probably imagine. Probably not as many as there is around. I wouldn't this think way. so. No, just not yeah. hasn't made its way out there yet. I guess. You know, I see a big wave of it uh, tracking. That is in like. Michigan, mm-hmm. like the UP and like yep. Wisconsin mm-hmm. and Minnesota, even like I think yeah. that's pretty cool. Uh, it's kind of like working its way east to west, which mm-hmm. is almost opposite of a lot of the other hunting trends. It's usually west to east. So yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool to yeah, see there's them. Some videos popping up of some yeah. guys doing tracking, taking up there. after us. It seems yeah. like the woods are pretty similar up there as they're for sure. Like yeah, especially like up in the UP. It's and funny how that sets up like that. Yeah, hmm. it's just that north, you know, latitude. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So we talked about the differences between um, how the woods set up in the southern part of the United States versus up here, but we didn't really talk about how you guys hunt them down there. How, yeah. How so does we, that... we, uh, <clears throat> so like we said, we rarely have snow. And so, first of all, I'll say that there's probably a whole lot of ways to, to hunt these these animals but like you guys up here uh you know there's a group of guys down there that that consistently hunt the big woods and there's a group of guys that i hunt with and we've kind of come up with a a strategy over time that if we implement that again you know you know maybe two three opportunities say at a mature you know at least three and a half maybe like four and a half year old deer in a season so 
Um, they, I mentioned acorn mass, so it kind of starts with that. And, and kind of the first thing we do is throughout the summer, you start assessing where the acorns are and are there a pattern to them? Because again, if acorns are everywhere, if acorns are only high, if acorns are only low, if acorns are kind of low everywhere, but maybe patchy where you can find a patch here and there, that's going to really, it's going to influence everything, the bears, the turkeys, uh, and the deer. And so <clears throat> we start there and that just kind of gives me a general idea of, of where to start looking. Um, but then we're looking for what I like to call buck pockets. So their deer density is really low, kind of like, you know, the mountains around here. I mean, really low. And so as you hike through these mountains, you know, the, the majority of the area, and I'm talking about like rut signs of rubs and scrapes, like mm -hmm. you just don't see that everywhere. You go to South Georgia, you go on some of these properties, there's kind of buck sign everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, there might be slight concentrations of it, but I mean, you'll walk these big mountain ridges and there'll be nothing 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 but <clears throat> there are these areas that i call buck pockets where you know you hit say a certain ridge top or a certain bench you know maybe it's a spot down low if acorns are only down low that year and where you'll find very high concentrations of buck sign and uh you know and that could be you know an area might be might be a hundred acres or less, but it, you know, that has 50 some odd rubs. It's just a real concentration of buck sign. And I mean, that sounds probably to a lot of your listeners like, Oh, go look for the buck sign. Like that's what you do everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but you have to think of this landscape, like it's this big, like white mountains type landscape. And these pockets are not everywhere. They're not on every ridge. Like you, so you really have to go out and find them. And so what we do is we go out, spend a lot of time hiking so you're just walking through the mountains walking through the mountains and you're looking for these pockets of buck sign and that's kind of the the key in my mind and then it once you identify those i kind of catalog them away because you know sometimes depending on the acorns one might not be used in the year but sometimes you'll have ones that are used over and over as well so i kind of catalog in my head or catalog them on my phone and then um what I do is go into those and that's where we hunt like it, it it makes in most of the areas down there in the southern appalachians if you just pull down a forest service road walk 100 yards off the road and sit down you, you almost might as well stay home i mean you're in the woods right but like it you know it, it just finding those pockets right there raises your chances and so what a lot of people will probably key in on is that you're we're primarily hunting them pre like leading into the rut and through the rut. And so if people remember what I was saying, that's December timeframe. So it's really kind of like mid-November through December that I'm hunting the mountains. Before that, I'm really hunting bears. I'm focused on bears. I mean, if I saw a deer, I'd shoot it if it's a good one, but focused on bears. Then I make a switch about mid-November and then I'm focusing on deer. Hiking, looking for these pockets. So then you find a pocket, you're hunting the pocket, and then you start using more you know methodologies that people would use anywhere um you know now you've found an area where you know you know that a mature deer might be based you might put cameras in that area i typically don't use cameras but 
anymore. I used to use cameras a lot. I don't now. Um, but you might use cameras. I hunt a lot by getting in kind of like topographic features, you know, different like gaps or saddles. Um, I, I think about the rhododendron as I was talking about early, earlier. Like oftentimes if I'm going to sit, the way I'm set up is it's like, it, it gives me the opportunity where I'm like spying somehow into the rhododendron, either watching like a trail that's kind of just in the edge. Mm-hmm. I'm watching into a chute somehow that goes into the rhododendron. I'm in like a hidden, like open area, like a little five acre area in the mm-hmm. middle of a sea of rhododendron. So that's part of it. So, um, but then sometimes when it rains, I like to, I like to move. So then I'll, you know, kind of still hunt through those areas. Um, I'll do a fair amount of calling and rattling. But again, the, the key is finding those pockets and not just going out and and hunting anywhere. Mm-hmm. Even just going to a saddle or something. Maybe that ups your probability a little bit. But when you, when you can find these concentrations of deer sign, it, it's key there. Because, again, because they're, they're pretty rare. But when you get into those, typically right. you're going to you know get into a mature buck. I don't know why. I don't see that... Like again in South Georgia, I don't see that here when I hunt. Yeah. Like I don't, I've never found an area. I was like, oh my god, this is, you know. But like I see that in these southern mountains where I'm hiking through mountains, it's like, oh my god, look at that rub. Oh, there's a rub, and it's just like this concentration. And then that concentration's kind of in a sea of very little buck side. Mm. So, um, so yeah. And there's a lot of, a lot of like nuance there in terms of the technique. With, um, it's, we talked a little bit earlier, Isaac, about like the gear. Like, so these buck pockets, once you find them and you're hunting them, you know, one might be, might be five miles off in the mountains. So imagine, I mean, it might be a mile, might be closer, but typically they're far away. So you're getting in there. Oftentimes, if you're going to sit, you might do an all day sit if you can. And so you're going to hike in, say five miles in like a white mountain type landscape. And then you're going to sit all day. And it's Mm -hmm. probably in the twenties, you know, so it's cold. So you got to think about... You know, I literally, I carry a full-size backpack like I do Western hunting, and I have full changes of clothes. And so I hike in in the dark um, and get to my spot, say I'm going to sit in a certain gap within this buck pocket. So like a gap or a saddle or a notch, whatever you want to call it. And I'm going to sit there, and I get in there, and I'm, you know, all sweated up, and I literally strip off every piece of clothes I have and I have in my backpack. I completely change my clothes all the way down to my socks and underwear and have all these other strategies for staying warm, just different pieces of gear that I'll use. And so thinking about a lot of those types of things is, is really critical. Um, you wear uh, snake gators? Uh, not there? that time of year. No, no. I, I was <laughs> curious. You'll hunt in the south because there's definitely more snakes down there. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, there are more snakes. I, st- I don't see a lot of snakes hunting but you know i, I oftentimes wear them during turkey season in particular okay so right hmm. a little warmer because when it when it's that cold they're pretty docile oh, yeah, yeah they're underground right. yeah they're underground even, yeah. yeah gotcha yeah. Hmm. cool all right so if people want to follow you and keep up with you where can they find you i would say the best place uh would be to find me on instagram which is at dr c l jenkins so d r c l j-e-n-k-i-n-s uh people can also uh check out our website the orian society which is at www.oriane.org and then finally i tell people to check out 
backcountry hunters and anglers. And uh, you can basically find that in all social media under backcountry hunters. Yep. So And, and you, you do a podcast yeah, too, right? Say. I do a podcast as well. If, if any of you are interested in snakes, I do a, a snake podcast called Snake Talk. And we do just a wide variety of things. We might have an expert come on to, you know, we had an episode, for example, called Everything Copperheads. Or we might, you know, we just talk about ecology and natural history. I have ones on snake bite, on snake handling churches, on whole variety of things. And actually, some of your listeners might be interested in the episode off the top of my head, but we did an episode on the Pennsylvania system for managing timber rattlesnakes, which is linked to hunting. So if you buy like your, I don't know what they call it, your sportsman package in Pennsylvania, you get a rattlesnake tag. Really? And I talked to the state biologist who runs that, and we went all through kind of the development of that management uh, plan and implementation for the rattlesnakes and we talk about the harvest season and you know all the regulations around it uh, it's fascinating and you know to be honest the really the message of that podcast episode is that it's hunting that really helped timber rattlesnakes really kind of stabilize and recover in that state that's pretty cool Hmm. are they the only state that has like a tag for hunting rattlesnakes uh, that's a good question. I don't know of another. There are certainly many states where you can kill oh, okay. snakes. Okay. Up here, you can't. Like, right. I mean, again, you know, like in Vermont, they're one of the most endangered species. You can get into real serious trouble. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there are definitely some states where you can kill them and not get in trouble. But in terms of other states that have a real season on them, like you would for a game species, I should know that, and I don't. But <laughs> Pennsylvania is the... the is the great example that hmm. that everybody kind of looks to. Cool. There's some states you can kill them like sight on scene, isn't there? Yep. Yep. Georgia would be one of those. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So if really? they're on your property or you run into one, you're more you than welcome to kill them. Yeah, it's perfectly legal. Gotcha. Unless there's like a federal layer like above mm-hmm. above the state. But, you know, at this time, we don't have that with any of the venomous snakes in Georgia. Gotcha. Hmm. Cool. So Anything else you guys want to add in? That's Good way to end it right there. Oh, yeah. I think it was a good podcast. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this with us. We appreciate it. No it's problem. It's awesome to get uh, some unique perspectives from other parts of the country because yeah. even down there, it seems like there's a lot of similarities up here and then a lot of major differences too. So it's good to see and contrast mm-hmm. those things. But thanks again. Yeah, great. Well, thanks Thank for having you. me. I appreciate it.